like I'm like reactions, comments, we know whatever. And the student's just like, so the machine gun like did not see that come. I'm like, oh yeah, dude. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> that's the that's the fun part. Although, did you do you hit him with the musca? That gun was actually not invented when Django takes place. Yes, it actually. I actually did more research into it. You think Muscarello was wrong? No, no, no. He's he's not wrong, but it's 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 complicated. Yeah, of course. It's it's certainly very complicated because it all depends on trying to situate actually when the movie takes place. Because I used to think it was immediately after the Civil War, but when he's in the cemetery. The gravestones all read like 1870s and 1880s. So if it's 1880s, feasibly, the the Maxim gun, the first belt-fed machine gun, was 1884. So feasibly, right? You know, or whatever. Now, I don't think that obviously they, the Italians, put that much thought into it. Certainly not. I think they wanted it to read as a Gatling gun. But, you know, whatever. It's just a cheap-ass fucking movie prop that they, like, whittled together and they had on hand. And so my take on it to them was just like, yeah, now there's some people who would say it should be a Gatling gun of anything. Yeah. And some people who would say, well, that still seems unrealistic that he would have it. And then some people who could make the argument that a Maxim gun was invented. And then I was like, and then you could just say to all those people, who cares? shut up. You know? Like, yeah. Shut up. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Forget it. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, well, tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown them? You crown them yeah. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the side. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very... Very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and with me, as always... Ryan Saunders. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double-feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a theme for the week, and the other two hosts pick movies in response to that theme, and we come on here... And we talk about it. It is episode 134. And the topic was stealing, thieving, uh, things of that nature. And as I said at the end of last episode, uh, I've taught a heist films course the past few years. And I'm not teaching it right now. And I was just sort of missing uh, a certain element of uh, stealing in my life that that I like, you know? And so... I asked the guys to bring me movies where people steal, uh, not necessarily heist films or any kind of, of film, but just films where people steal stuff. Uh, and uh, happy to report that's what we got this week, two movies where people steal things and a lot more. Uh, so we might as well just get down to it. Ryan, you had... <laughs> the earlier of the two films, and in yes. fact, the uh, earliest film we have had on the gauntlet. So why Indeed. don't you tell us all about it? Well, you know me, I love to always break records, for <laughs> forge new grounds, and I think our previous earliest film was 1918, also a film I brought. The Dream Lady? Yeah, yeah. And I brought that one, and then I 
I happened to find one from a couple of years earlier, from 1915. So we're going way back. We're going over 100 years back, almost 110 years, not quite. But when you first pitched the topic, I had two things in mind, two vibes. And I was thinking, I want films that's either like a really elaborate, spectacular, fantastical thieving or something kind of inconsequential, like a kid stealing a juice box or something like that. Uh, and I didn't find, I didn't really come across anything like that. I think I like had it in the back of my mind. It's harder to find a film that has like an inconsequential theft uh, to like search for. You'd have to just sort of know. But because I was thinking about our stories we talked about, you know, when I stole that grape in in Sears and, and my dad got mad at me and made me like go talk to the guy about stealing a plastic grape to me like that left such an impression on me so my my whole angle was going to be an inconsequential theft but that's not where I ended up I I started digging and digging and I started going farther and farther back I was thinking like ooh maybe the 30s maybe some sort of jewel thief or something like that but I I went all the way back to the era of phantomas exploitation right this is the, the era of Louis Fouillard. People were going crazy for this guy, for serials, for madcap thieving adventures. And I happened to find one from Italy that is riffing a little bit on Les Vampires, Fantomas, all, all that stuff. Uh, and so the film I came across is called Philibus from the year 1915. Full title is Philibus Mysterious air pirate. It's directed by an Italian man named Mario Roncaroni, who I didn't find a ton of information about, but I know that this was a very short-lived film studio that was sort of like riding on the success, hoping that this thing would go gangbusters and become a much larger serial. It would be developed over time, but that didn't pan out, and instead we just have what is essentially a feature film broken up across five episodes. When they finished the film, they said you could either release it as a feature or you could break it up into five really nice little chunks. And the film tells the story of a woman, the Baroness Trohmond, who is, she's a thief. Her alter ego is Philibus. She rides around in the titular <laughs> mysterious airship. Pretty neat. And at the top of the film, in the news is about how 60,000 lira has been stolen from a bank. And Philibus knows, uh, because she stole this money, that there's a detective on the case trying to track her down. And in a clever way of deciding to evade this detective, Mr. Cut Hendy, one of the strangest names, I think, in, in all of cinema, she decides to develop an elaborate scheme to make it seem as though Cut Hendy himself, this detective, is the Philibus that he is after. This is done through a series of elaborate ruses. We've got uh, such things as like laughing gas that like knocks you out with just like a couple squirts. We've got people being pulled up and down from the sky. We've got molds of hands. We have cross-dressing. We have anything you can think of. All sorts of subterfuge to convince everyone that Mr. Cut Hendy is himself Philibus. So, you know, when I first saw the poster of the film, I was really taken in by it. It's got like a, those early 1910s posters are just like so stunning. And it, 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 the first thing I thought of was like, oh, what is this thing that looks like a Louis Fouillade film? And, and it really does feel like that, but it has like some really unique qualities 
especially when seen through a modern lens. This film certainly has like a pretty, you know, gung-ho marketing campaign currently for it because it recently got restored and it's been playing around and people kind of pitch it as it's this transgender steampunk lesbian thriller there's no rules everything's out of control and it does actually have all of those things this is a film that isn't constrained by any types of censorship or rules about filmmaking and that does bubble up to the surface i mean if i had one complaint about the film is that we do spend way too much time with mr cut hendy i'd rather be having all my screen time being with philibus but it's it's got all of that you know like philibus does take on the appearance with male-coded dress wear and then is actively courting a woman, Leonora, and we have, like, there's a little bit of a lesbian subplot there that, you know, you know, we'll, we'll talk about where it ends up, but, like, these things are all peppered throughout, and, yeah, it just feels really advanced, and it's, it's always funny watching something this old with a modern lens and thinking about how contemporary it can still feel. And again, seeing anything over 100 years old always feels like a miracle, so I was both totally enamored with the fantastical quality and just having the privilege of being able to see something from so long ago. And yeah, I, I'm excited to, to chat about all the theming that occurs in it. So that's Philibus, the mysterious air pirate from 1915. Thank you very much. Andy, why don't you tell us about what you flew in? Well, I had a few things uh, in you know, my, my back pocket. Um, I, uh, have been spending so much time, you know, in, in, uh, sort of like European co-productions, uh, with, uh, these spaghetti Westerns. And so my initial reaction was to, to sort of look at, you know, the great tradition of Euro crime, which we had sort of visited before, uh, in depth one week when we hung out with Jean-Paul Belmondo and some of his great, you know, cop movies uh, from the 70s and uh, early 80s. And I had one that I was almost positive I was going to pick. And then I checked in with Ryan and he told me what he wanted to to bring, that that he was locked in this this movie, Philibus. And then the light bulb went on and, and I remembered a movie that I felt was a, a perfect pairing uh, on a lot of levels to go with Philibus, a movie that I have nearly brought to the podcast several times <laughs> for various reasons, a movie that is in, in many circles quite maligned, but in other circles uh, quite uh, appreciated for it's also, I would say, kind of madcap zaniness, no rules attitude uh, that it, it kind of everything but the kitchen sink kind of approach to, to what goes on in the film. So I guess to preface the pick, I would say, you know, long before Nicolas Cage uh, became notorious or infamous for stealing the Declaration of Independence, we had Bruce Willis on a mission to steal Leonardo da Vinci's notebook in the movie Hudson Hawk from 1991, directed by Michael 
Lehman. Um, yeah, what to say about Hudson Hawk? I mean, this is a really, um, it was considered like one of the worst movies of 1991. Uh, it was extremely unpopular in the United States, but it was very popular abroad. There were a lot of European audiences that, that really, really enjoyed this movie. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, the film uh, stars Bruce Willis as Eddie Hawk. Uh, excuse me. Uh, the film stars Bruce Willis as Eddie the Hawk Hawkins. Uh, and when the film opens up, he is a, uh, a, a notorious cat burglar who's been in prison for, I think, a decade, we come to find out. And he is released on parole and very quickly swept up into... Uh, an elaborate conspiracy that will ultimately lead to this this big heist at the Vatican in which he's going to have to steal Leonardo da Vinci's notebook. The Da Vinci uh, Code. The, yeah, the, the original Da Vinci Code, right? Um, yeah, uh, he is uh, he's a cat burglar, the Hudson Hawk, and uh, he gets sort of pressured into, blackmailed into... You know, going back to his his naughty ways, his bad ways, his thieving ways, by among others, uh, the Mayflowers, these sort of evil billionaires, Darwin and Minerva, played by Richard E. Grant and Sandra Bernhard, respectively. But also, in addition to that, the CIA are going to play a role. This sort of like rogue CIA group. Uh, led by George Kaplan, played by the great James Colburn. Uh, he will, of course, be aided in his travels by his good buddy, Tommy Five-Tone, played by Danny Aiello, and a, uh, a, a very dedicated, like, Vatican secret agent, played by uh, the wonderful Andy McDowell. Yeah, it is a, it is a bonkers movie. It is a goofy-ass movie. Uh, it is... Uh, cartoonish. It is uh, at times uh, uh, very stylized. It's very expressive. Uh, there are also a couple musical numbers, which you gotta love between Bruce Willis and Danny Aiello. Uh, yeah, it is, um, man, it is a very curious item. And, you, you know, people who've listened to this podcast know what a big fan I am of this particular kind of like Hollywood curio, a thing that a lot of people uh, really sort of trashed and maligned when it came out, but over the years has found its own dedicated audience, of which I am one of those members, I would, I would certainly say. Um, really, the whole movie is a sort of brainchild, though, when you kind of look behind the scenes of Bruce Willis and uh, the producer slash sort of like music impresario Robert Kraft. Robert Kraft was, in addition to what he had done in, in movies, a, a, a producer in the music industry. And prior to this film, he had produced... Uh, both of Bruce Willis's pop blues albums from the late 1980s. Uh, 
the one that most people probably know of is the the return, return of, of Bruno. Bruno. Yeah, 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 with the big like number seven hit. <laughs> Respect yourself. Uh, yeah, I mean, like I just love the the earnestness with which Bruce Willis at this point in time sort of tried to become like a star in everything. You know, he sort of conquered TV with Moonlighting. Uh, he had the the massive hit of Die Hard that catapulted him now onto to to movie screens, and then he just was like, you know, I can sing too, everybody. <laughs> yeah, and uh, woo, yeah, it's uh, it's something. It's something to behold. Yeah, I mean, this is just a, 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 a on a certain level, a sort of vanity project. And again, I think people know that I like those kinds of things, at least exploring them. Not even in the sense that you know they're they're amazing movies, but they really are to me like. Uh, amazing projects to to sort of witness and behold and experience at a certain point. And that, to me, is a lot of the fun with a movie like this. It is all over the place, folks. And I fully understand why people hate it. And I fully understand why people love it. It's uh, you're, you're going to be in either one or the other <laughs> camp. That's for yes. sure. Uh, so, yeah, that is Hudson Hawk from 1991. Thank you very much. Well, where to begin? You know, ever since Edwin S. Porter dazzled audiences <laughs> with his great train robbery, uh, <laughs> audiences worldwide have, have been fascinated with thievery right it's certainly something i think we're all sort of secretly fascinated with you know if not uh, outright and especially seeing it on screen so uh it was fun to uh run the gamut this week from the the very beginning uh to yes uh the end of the goddamn 20th century and i do appreciate the curated sort of uh, structure of this week because these films both belong to the same tradition, which is basically the sort of gentleman thief tradition, the sort of zany caper tradition, rather than the like proletarian heist sort of strain, the more gangster strain of films about stealing. And so they are definitely a pair uh, in that sense that they come from that like Arsène Lupin, Fantomas sort of tradition uh, in their grandiosity right yeah uh, there's, there's <laughs> nobody in filibus that's hurting for some change you know? oh my god dude i was complaining <laughs> to kyle that like these guys don't even fucking have jobs and they all like live in these huge chateaus on the largesse <laughs> yeah. of italian colonialism you know yeah like, <laughs> yeah it's i mean insane. world war one is raging in the background too <laughs> right. that's right. what i was thinking yeah but Genoa looks fantastic, you know? Certainly I, does. It does. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> wow. You know, like, <laughs> there's, like, a really funny moment when, to, in order to trick Cut Hendy, they have to airlift him out of, like, one space and put him somewhere else so that he, like, you know, gets confused about, like, what was happening when he was knocked out cold. Um, and, and that was when it, like, really like fit into place for me where I'm just thinking about how like all of these villas, like just stunning views. Like it's funny that he wakes up and you know, he's, he's, he's so haunted because you'd think you'd be relaxed with how just like fucking beautiful everything in Italy <laughs> is in this movie. Like how could he have anything to worry about? Like they're just all so posh. 
there's one guy who gets kidnapped and and the second he's not kidnapped he's just like ordering his butler to give him a cup of joe yeah. and he's like yeah. where you know yeah. he, he he escapes this kidnapping and his first instinct is to go put on his like silk smoking jacket and like read the morning papers with a with an espresso you know he doesn't go yeah. to the police station yeah it's so yes there's that aristocratic strain uh strain you know in there of the whole yeah. endeavor and i guess like one of the things that maybe I feel like to me doesn't really work in Hudson Hawk is what what they're doing is kind of interesting because they're trying to make Hudson Hawk this like proletarian hero. He's just this guy from New Jersey. He's not even that smart. He just sort of like gets the job done, you know, and it's not He's very cool. Yeah. yeah. Like he gets mm-hmm. on he gets by on style, basically, and is not you know, this rich guy, this aristocrat, right? He's more of a positioned as this working class hero, but then he's injected into this like art world, high class sort of like billionaire government Vatican plot that is just, yeah, people who have nothing better to do than just ruin other people's lives, you know? Well, <laughs> you know, and and I was going to say, that's another reason why I was sort of like, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's actually a lot of connections between these two movies on a, on, on certain levels. And like, he is also uh, kidnapped at a certain point. Oh, right. That's what I was <laughs> wakes up in Rome yep. in, in a beautiful <laughs> right, apartment right. and is equally untroubled by suddenly stepping out and looking at the Coliseum outside of his window after uh, being in New Jersey, probably a few hours before that. But yeah, it's also a, a, f- a film that features some Dante Spinotti cinematography and Rome looks gorgeous as well. We've got a lot of sort of lush visuals. Yeah, but I do hear what you're saying. I mean, like there's a lot of, there, I mean, look, there's so many pieces stuffed into this movie coming from so many different angles. And I think that's also because you have so many different creative, uh, sort of creative visions and voices that, that each are, I think, great on their own, but coming together into something that is like so messy as this, you know, you really do start to see why I think a lot of people just scratch their head. I mean, you've got a screenplay by Stephen E. D'Souza. Yeah. 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 yeah, Big time, you know, (laughs) You got Michael Lehman, who before this had directed, you know, Heathers, yeah, uh, which was uh, even again like not a, a successful film on its first release, but a huge cult hit uh, that had a, a, a massive following. I mean, still to this day, the Spinotti cinematography, and then Bruce Willis being like, "Can I do a couple songs, you know, with Danny Aiello? Can we get that going on here?" I mean, man, it's just like all, all over the place, and like I think that's part of it is that he is this sort of just like very fake character yeah but everybody's Mm -hmm. very fake in this movie and i think that's why it's clicked and connected for me over the years because i pick up more i think on after having seen it a couple times the idea that actually this thing is a big send-up and you know they are having a lot of fun now just because they have a lot of fun doesn't mean it's a great movie, right? But I think I've come to appreciate some of that a little bit more over the years. But yeah, again, if 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 the idea of a sort of like mugging, smug, cool Bruce Willis wearing a fedora is is not your uh, cup of tea, then yes, you will find Hudson Hawk to be uh, yeah. a very problematic experience for yeah. sure. Well. 
you know, I could shed, I could shed some light on, on that experience. The, the, and I think you're getting at something that wasn't quite clear to me why I hated this movie so much. And I, I did go in like wanting to like it. I, I was excited when you picked it. I, cause I knew about its reputation as this maligned thing that has like a big following that's sort of developed over the years. It's got this weird anarchic spirit. And I mean, I'm kind of Bruce Willis apathetic. I've never had a problem with the guy, but I, I mean, I, <laughs> I hated this movie so much that I like, don't know if I could watch him again, like for a few years. There's something about this. Damn harsh. Yeah. I liked White Squaw more than this movie. This is like really oh, like, wow. Yeah. This is like one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. And, and it's, and it's because, and I don't even think it's like a worse film. It it to me it like registers at a certain pitch. It's exactly what you said, Andy, which is like if you're with this, you're with it. If you're not, you're gonna have a problematic time. And it and it was so clear, like very, very early on, where I'm like, is this how they're going to talk the whole time? Like, is this what the performances are gonna be like? This kind of broad, very sanitized Hollywood style of acting mixed with this quote unquote like witty fedora wearing banter that is supposed to present itself as being anarchic. And I think you mentioning March too that like he's supposed to maybe be like not necessarily a proletarian hero, but someone that gets thrown into this world of billionaires. It's like rendered so flat for me the whole time because it feels like this big in joke from a bunch of like Hollywood elite or something where I never buy that about him. Like I wish this film, even like you said, Andy, it's like this whole thing is this this fascinating paradox because it's it's a mess, but it's also not a mess. It's too clean. It has like no anarchic spirit or edge to me. Like it to me, it just feels like a '90s Hollywood film. But it has all this weird content that yes, it is like a mess. It's like what is this thing? But I wish it was harder. I wish it was rougher. And I know that's an unrealistic expectation to place on something made with this kind of budget and this kind of stature. But it was like I was defeated by it. I I started it last night, could not finish it because it was bumming me out. I, I finished the rest of it today, and I don't begrudge you for picking it. I'm, I don't want to make this seem like I'm beating you up or anything. But I like I have to just like I, I cannot emphasize how much I hated this movie <laughs> wow like like i'm of the camp of the original critics that were just like this is boring this sucks like bruce willis is smug yeah i don't know you know i, I mean again i guess i understand that but you know for me i think because it's so dumb and because uh -huh. it's so bad uh i love it you know like i'm the, i'm in the opposite camp you know sure. because it's like I don't think that they set about with that mission of sort of trying to be like the way you've kind of categorized it is sort of like this, like very standard kind of like Hollywood action movie. Like I think in many respects they're, they're, they're also like trying to sort of like make fun of that kind of movie. Sure. And I think you do see that in those, especially in some of the performances, which again, I fully understand can be sort of like grading for some people, especially when you look at some of the personalities involved. I mean, Sandra Bernhard was a very polarizing figure for a lot of people. Uh, you know, one of those comedians that people either like got on board with or didn't like, and a lot of it was her sort of personality. I mean, Richard E. Grant is another guy that like some people love and some people hate, and maybe it depends on the movie that he's in, you know? But I think that they're like, they're going so sort of like, they're going so far into the, the, the sort of hamminess of it all 
that like, to me, that's where it becomes sort of self-parodic. And especially some of the lines that they will sort of spit out and throw out that acknowledge the ridiculousness of the scenario and of the film itself, you know? Yeah. Uh, And I totally concede to that. Like, I see all that in there. And then that's like the weird thing with this movie for me, because I don't like disagree with the read on it, that it's doing all these interesting things. Like I get why the Europeans liked it. It, It's like, it's almost like just the act of listening to it. Like I couldn't handle, like I get that the Europeans liked it because they're not native English speakers that like, there was just something about this movie. Like I, it it was, it really, I think was the performances and some of that banter that I felt like I was, I was losing my mind. I would like to enter the arena and uh, I would also like to represent the third way. Sure. The, the middle path, <laughs> as little Buddha would do. Um, I do not think this movie is very funny, and I think that's a problem. I mm-hmm. do think there's some very funny performances. And again, this maybe just speaks to my background as a movie watcher, but I found James Coburn in this movie to be delightful. Oh, yeah. Uh, of course, I'm a longtime James Coburn lover, but I love that he's in it as well because this is something that they used to do already in like 60s heist films they would be like we got to get one of the classic heist guys to like appear as an old guy in these films it's like a you know eddie g robinson has to play like you know the planner in some like early 60s film when he's like old as hell or whatever well and specifically with the casting of james coburn it's also yes it's a throw to you know a movie that this is mm-hmm. sort of i think spiritually emulating in terms of this again idea of like more of a send up uh but cashing in on obviously conventions with like his flint series and the the sort of spoof quality of that you know that that kind of uh uh, yeah, again, you know, very kind of self-aware approach to the material. But he certainly has, I think, some of the best lines yeah, his, of anybody. His little bit about communism in, like, the Italian plaza, like, was one of the only moments where I actually was, like, laughing <laughs> yeah. at the movie. Enjoying Italy? Yeah. Yes. I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Rome. I did my first barehanded strangulation here communist politician. Why, George, you big softy. God, I miss communism. The red threat? People were scared. The agency had some respect, and I got laid every night. Um, but, yeah, it's it's just all over the place for me, and I think it, it feels like a movie made by so many different people. We didn't even talk about like Joel Silver, uh, the producer who of course, oh, you yeah. know, was a heavy handed producer and a very powerful producer and a guy who, uh, has bad taste, you know? Um, but I do, it, it really did make me remember in college, you know, I, at some point, like a lot of people, I was in a record store just digging in the crates and I came across the Bruce Willis record and it was like one ninety nine, and I took it home and I remember being like, this will be c- cool or funny. And like, just being like, Whoa, this is just not good. You know, it was, it was not cool and it wasn't funny. It was just like, what, yeah. what is this? You know, and it's something. so I was very early on reading this, you know, call back to our vanity projects episode and just kind of then like 
appreciating the train wreck. I mean, I think like it's just the editing is too frantic to like hit any like the jokes have no pace like there's None. a huge pace pace issue with this movie in my opinion and that like hinders a lot of it for me you know it's crazy though because like me reflecting on it this time it, it, it's it's unique to find a movie i think like this where you you look at the pacing issue that some people would bring up and have brought up and that this is the sort of rare case of a movie in which the pacing for a two-hour movie is like too breakneck it's too coked out of its mind there is no pause between set pieces i mean set pieces are just like tripping into each other i mean there is there like when he falls off the truck and into dinner you know yeah which is a fun that's actually a funny gag but like in general like you need to have a moment of uh, to breathe to laugh to appreciate anything and it just never gives yeah, you that no. you know i mean there's they go from like this elaborate heist that has a musical number in which Danny Aiello and, and Bruce Willis are singing "Swinging on a Star" while they're they're robbing this this uh, this like antique uh, show at, after hours, and that's like one of the, the 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 things about their character. You're sort of wondering why the the musical numbers are in there, aside from Bruce Willis's kind of vanity. Um, it's that th- there's this interesting thing about his character. I'm putting interesting in quotation marks for the listeners at home, where um, he doesn't wear a watch and he he sort of times everything in his life by his almost autistic knowledge of uh the 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 precise like minutes and seconds of popular recorded songs so when someone's like wow it's gonna be you know five and a half minutes or whatever like 533 you know frank sinatra blah 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 you know throughout these song titles you know so so when they have to time their heists and synchronize their movements split up from one another because they don't have a watch they do so by both you know trying to make sure that they they hit that song uh, as precisely as possible and that's that's their sort of thing but we go from like this to again like this crazy escape where they jump off the roof and they fall through this like awning and it's a hard cut from him crashing through the awning to plopping down in an easy chair uh, of an apartment that is owned by his parole officer and also occupied the by mafia. the Mario <laughs> yeah. Brothers. Did <laughs> you? I mean, yeah. Secret maybe Nintendo uh, product placement because Nintendo is brought up multiple times throughout the film. And then yes, Frank Stallone is one half of the Mario Brothers of New Jersey. But we go from that a guy getting his throat cut to then suddenly like he's uh, going back to the to the gallery. And then there's an explosion. Then he's in a ambulance and then he's kicked out of the back of the ambulance and is is riding down the highway on a gurney i mean this is all in the span of like 10 minutes of of a movie and there is no break between any of these sequences i've described I do like when the cigarette gets thrown on the highway and he catches it in his mouth. Great moment. Yeah. And then uh, goes like, oh, menthol and spits it out. Yeah. Typical. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, another issue, if I if I may, uh, in terms of stealing, you know? I mean, I have issues with both movies in terms of stealing, but that's fine. I don't really care. <laughs> but I do want to bring it up because, yeah, like... Hudson Hawk again it does there's a lot of movies like this that aren't like heist films per se uh, in terms of like there's no big planning and shit like that but like 
yeah, he just like effortlessly just does like three heists in the movie and there's no tension at, at any point, you know? No, and I just no. like, that's, that's something like, shared by both films yeah. is, is the ease <laughs> with which these master criminals can simply just go in and, and get whatever it is that they want by themselves, basically, uh, with, with very poor security. And yeah, so again, Look, I've uh, seen films where people plan the whole film for that, like two minutes when you're yeah. doing the job yeah. and, and, and it still goes yeah. wrong. You know? Yes. Yes. But yeah. again, we are in the, both movies are, are firmly planted in the more fantastical, uh, yeah. sort of element. And, Philibus, you know, I wanted to see that robbery referred to in the papers. Instead, the plot is actually like her ruining this guy's life, you know? <laughs> and there is, of course, a part yeah. where, you know, she goes in and, and steals these, di- uh, you know, diamonds uh, from yeah, the Egyptian The diamond cats. eyeballs. Yeah. Of- <laughs> uh, the big time, like, oriental display in Leo's house. I mean, these guys, again, they're plundering Africa and just putting yeah. it in their chateaus. But, yeah. Yeah, like the ease with which, you know, she just moves in and out uh, is awesome because, of course, yes, she's a master criminal. Uh, But, yeah, we've got that sort of commonality between these. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in both cases, right, they're they're just the best. And that's never called into question. <laughs> yeah. That's like the base level understanding of both both of these thieves. Like they are the best. Yeah, as much so in Hudson Hawk because he he doesn't want to be a thief anymore and he keeps finding himself being forced to go and steal again because he is the best. And I, I think like that is a fun little bit there because even in, in Philibus, I, there is never that tension of is she going to successfully steal those diamonds i i thought the central tension of that movie was is she ever really going to convince cut hendy that he is philibus like she's yeah. so good at it that i'm like is this she gonna almost end with breaks him, like, his brain dude yeah, yeah i thought i honestly thought losing. that like a viable path like for the film was going to be cut hendy like in an institution like thinking yes. that he or that he's such an honest citizen that he's like i i must you have to lock me up because clearly I don't have control over myself. Cause at if, first he thinks it might be like sleepwalking or something. If this had been like a German film, that's how it would have been. Yes. You know, if it was yeah. not Italian and German for sure. Yeah. When you said earlier, Ryan, that you wanted to spend all your time with Philibus, I got to slightly disagree. Cause this guy was cracking me up just in his <laughs> pantomime of like having his mind blown repeatedly, like scene <laughs> yeah. after scene. He's just like, you know, the veins in his head, or like popping he's like That's grabbing his hair yeah. you know he was cracking me up with just like how you know he was put through the ringer by oh, yeah. philibus let's be honest he's sweating he really in that was. starched collar <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean and again too it's like if she is like hudson hawk just this sort of like uh uh perfect the best, the best yeah thief he is the worst detective in the world, even though the title says he's like the greatest detective, right? I mean, he is absolutely like horrible at his uh, ability to detect anything. And certainly the elaborate scheme that she's running on him. I mean, yes, that would trouble certain people, but like, I feel like there were multiple times where he could have done something other than what he was doing, which was being incredibly passive (laughs) until he was dragged in front of the magistrate. And they were like, dude, Everything points to you, and he's like, "It does look bad." You know, <laughs> like, I mean, he gave them basically like his his gentleman's honor that he would he would either clear his name or accept 
his fate. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Because you could honestly, it's open-ended enough where you could read it that she's never actually afraid that he's going to catch her, even if she did leave him alone, but that she's using this opportunity just to fuck with him. Yeah. Because she knows he's so gullible for it. It's like, oh, this guy's going to try and come after me. Like, I'm going to literally turn his life upside down and (laughs) ruin his mental health. (laughs) <laughs> and she's secure in knowing that even if she gets busted, she has multiple layers of identity. And that's exactly yeah. what happens. She's unmasked as the Baron, but that's just simply another disguise. You right. know, no one knows she's the Baroness. So if she even is the Baroness, you know, if that's another fiction, it's unclear uh, to me in that sense. Yeah, know? it feels like it to me. I This is one of those movies, too, where I... There's so much that happens outside of it just because it's got crazy world building that's sort of taken for granted that I always wonder, like, how she got where she is. Because, yeah, she's like we said, she's she's not a proletarian hero. Like her airship is just full of these male minions, these like hunky dudes that just like do her bidding. And I would yeah. love her to beefy chauffeur. <laughs> yeah, I wanted uh, it'd be so nice to get like backstory about the hiring process, how she found these guys, hired them to work on her airship, how they were trained, who was like handling the personnel. Well, um, you, you know what, Ryan, it's really all building towards Dr. Mabuza because you do yeah, actually like get that eventually. And and I think, you know, Fantomas and Philibus and all that stuff in the tens is all building up to that Mabuza moment, the ultimate, you know, epic of this kind of thing. Yeah. Spies and disguises and stealing and minion coked out minions, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And people going insane, literally. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, very true. Yeah, I mean, it is a, it almost feels like a coked out vision itself. I mean, just the airship is looks wild every time we see it. I I saw a funny note that when the film came out, critics complained that the special effects were bad, which I think is like extremely funny to think about that people yeah, in 1915 already. yeah, saw this like yeah, this, this looks is... like shit. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Aren't you guys seeing movies for the first time? Like, you know, <laughs> like 10 years ago, you thought that train was going to like run it. Well, 20 years ago, you thought yeah, that train was going to like, in, dude, they're cynical yeah. and jaded now. <laughs> yeah. You know, They've seen Kabiria, you know, they've yeah. seen Griffith. This uh, is, right. you know? Yeah. I mean, they've seen, you know, Melier. I mean, already just a few years before yeah. this going to and from the moon. Went to the goddamn moon. Yeah. But, it makes you think. You know? I mean, again, uh, you know, f- f- obviously conceding to the 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 messy uh, sort of like uh, uh, central presences of Hudson Hawk. I think it is, again, for what it is, uh, on that level, on a technical level, it's got some really amazing like effects work and stunt work throughout it. I mean, this movie like looks great to me. All the the sort of, yes, I guess, steampunk elements as well, because we get this uh, whole prologue in Da Vinci's studio and the production design. They clearly spent a lot of that, uh, a lot of that budget in just sort of like building all those contraptions and that whole world. The, the machine itself, which we didn't really get into for, for those who don't know, 
the the whole thing that uh, the the Mayflowers are really trying to go after is apparently uh, in established in this prologue that that Leonardo da Vinci had uh, amongst all of his other things that he's doing, and we get this whole prologue where we see all of the stuff, you know, the flying machine. Uh, we see him painting the Mona Lisa. We of course get a get to discover why she has that look on her face and this the joke is that she's just got really really bad teeth or something like that but anyway we get all of this and in that he has also developed the 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 gold machine the machine of gold he's created the sort of process to turn lead into gold and this is ultimately what the mayflowers want and like all of that stuff and all of that whole like action sequence that we build to that climax at the castle. To me, that stuff looks amazing. Like that, that for this era looks really great. And you could see that kind of Joel Silver sheen on a lot of that stuff. Well, Joel Silver certainly produced Michael Mann movies with, you know, and Dante Spinati. So, oh yeah, uh, there's definitely a, a connection there. I, I I had forgotten about the the bad teeth Mona Lisa. And it just got me thinking about it. Like, I think this movie has so much like really, really ugly humor, like really like <laughs> stomach churning, nasty shit that that like was getting to me. I mean, it's really early on when he says something like I think they're talking about community service. He's like, yeah, that's what I want to do. Teach a handicap how to yodel. And I was like, what the fuck are we watching? Like, what is this? Like, I I think it's Steven stupid. Steven De D'Souza. Yeah, like, yeah. I think it's stupid when he says things like, ooh, uh, slurp my butt. But, like, it's, like, kind of funny. It's like, whatever, this is stupid, this is dumb. But then you've got, you know, like, you got the the, the big beefy evil henchman and, like, the, the joke is, you know, they're trying to figure out what their next move's gonna be. And he's like, oh, you want me to go in there and rape him? And then I'm just, I don't know. Oh, like, yeah. I, to so much of it, like, there's just so much to me that, like, isn't even, like, even if I try to place myself in 1990, I'm just like, what? This is not funny. Like, what <laughs> Is, yeah. This is like so mean spirited and ugly and hateful and misanthropic. Like I think, I think you're going a little far with <laughs> with with that personally. I, I mean, mean yeah. well, well, look again. I'm going to split the difference because I found the first 30 minutes of this movie kind of tough. Uh, least of all because there are like at least 15 homophobic jokes in the first 20 minutes non-stop yeah. it is just like in tough guys when you get out of prison and they just go like everything's gay now uh and they make that joke over and over and over again and then it just disappears because danny aiello is not in the movie anymore for like an hour sure which is i mean again though it's like that's hollywood of the era in many well, respects it's no excuse you know, you know? no like, it's, cer look it's certainly it's filibus <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it's cer it's certainly not an excuse, but it's also not like an aberration no. that Hudson Hawk was the only movie that had some, uh, you know, off-color uh, jokes in that sense, you know? I was going to say it smoothed out for me, you know? Like, after the first 30 minutes, uh, it was a lot better than I thought it was in terms of where it was going, and I settled into, a, again, a relatively, uh, you know, 
middle ground between it all where I just kind of like enjoyed the ride uh, and the performances. Just again, the pacing and the tone is so all over the place. It's hard to, to make of it. And it was my first time seeing it. So it's like just so much to handle. It actually reminded me of kind of shoot 'em up in a way in terms yeah. of this sort of like live action cartoon that's moving like a mile a minute, you know? Because I did like I that's the thing. I, I thought it was interesting when you were saying you didn't or at least the, the, the spacing of things was a little intense for you. Because when I was thinking about one of my favorite moments, it was him landing on top of the truck with the chickens and then like jumping immediately to dinner and like spitting up the, the chicken feathers when he was like sitting down to to eat with her, you know, and then was just like being the crude American talking to like the Italian waiter and then like ordering like gourmet ketchup that comes out in like a champagne bucket of ice. Yeah, that looks sick. Yeah. But like to me that like that, I actually like thought that sequence was one of the, I was like, I saw the panels. I saw the like comic storyboards or at least how it felt like a live action cartoon in that sense. Cause it follows like a really weird thread of visual logic from like moment to moment that felt like less dependent on the people at hand in certain moments. Now, one thing that I, I want to highlight that I like about Hudson Hawk is it's uh, right out. It does again, you know, something that I appreciate, which is knowing your genre, knowing your genre's history is the equivalence of stealing to like being stealing being an artistic act right and i think that is a crucial thing uh, especially in these kind of like cosmopolitan caper settings and these settings where you have the art world and rich people and people sort of penetrating that is like you said, Andy, in terms of like sending up or satirizing this kind of like high level of society or like wealth and money in society. Um, I mean, you can tie it again. It's like 1990, right? Uh, the 80s just happened, you know, and I think there's uh, a lot to that. But uh, making like, yeah, like art. It's just fucking arbitrary bullshit. You know, the price of art is just arbitrary bullshit rigged by rich people. And what this guy does, stealing, like that's an art, you know, that's a skill uh, as opposed to uh, whatever else is going on. You know, some guy in Philibus collecting Egyptian artifacts, <laughs> <laughs> posing them for everyone, you know? Yeah, what was that guy's name? Leo Sandy, whose life is just antiquities. That's like yeah. the nice way of phrasing that this guy is just like... <laughs> Plundering Hoarding. the third yeah. world, yeah. Exactly. Stacking it up in, like, elaborate chests. I Because, like, I was even thinking about that, right? Like, there's something bizarre about so the thing that Philippus is going to take, or at least not even going to take, but to, like, steal in order to frame Cut Hendy, are these, like, diamond eyes in an Egyptian cat, this big statue that's in this case. And so one of the ways they decide they're like how we're going to catch Philibus in the act is we're going to put this tiny little camera in the eyeball of this, the cat so that when she plops out the diamond, it's going to catch her and then we'll be able to see who the true identity is. And it'll, you know, I'll be totally exonerated, Mr. Cut Henry. I'm like, I'm not Philibus. But then so when she goes in and she goes to actually take these things, she can tell pretty quickly, like, wait, these aren't the real diamonds. She's, and she starts to think, okay, where are they? And this is what I was so, I couldn't get over, was that there's like a big Egyptian treasure chest in the room. 
and those guys like threw the real diamonds <laughs> just like not in a package or anything like that into that chest which is just like a big pile of junk that they've stolen from other countries and she like riffs around through the bin and finds the diamonds and it's like they're not even really actually that concerned about these supposedly priceless diamonds being stolen they're just like tossing them in the trash basically like we'll we'll get them later and then like none of these rich people even be able to tell the difference but it's like that's like that kind of attitude right where it's like these guys like what do they even care about the value of any of these things the theft almost feels meaningless it's just about catching somebody see and i think that's why i can fully understand that you know the the impetus for making this movie was to sort of, yeah, cash in, as you said in your intro, on the sort of like popularity of Fantomas and that this didn't have any legs or that they saw that it wasn't going to have the kind of legs that that certainly like Fouillard is able to, to, to bring out there. Because, again, I think with like heist movies and the idea of of building movies around you know, stealing things. Uh, both of these movies, like they suffer in the sense that, as you've already mentioned, there's just no drama around <laughs> the sort of like central concern of the genre, if you want to even call it that, right? Like we love heist movies as Marsh has certainly talked about a lot in his heist class and, and in other places that, you know, it's like, we, we see the work that's required, you know, and there's like this sort of like build up and, and the tension is, will they, or won't they be able to do it? And, and there's just none of that in either of these movies. I mean, like Hudson Hawk again, even goes to another level for me where they're, they're, they are trying to just sort of like make fun of it when uh, he is later even uh, trying to get roped into one more heist at the Louvre of all places. There's one more piece of the puzzle and he's sort of like, fuck that. I don't want to do it. Like I'm, I'm already sick of all this shit. And then we just sort of get like a cut to like the next day where James Coburn walks in with the thing they wanted him to steal and was like, right. yeah, we got it. You know, which again right. would be in any scenario, this huge set piece and there's drama involved and we want to know about it. He's just like, yeah, well, it wasn't pretty, but we got it. You know, you robbed the probably biggest and most famous art gallery in the fucking world. And it happened off screen and it went off without a hitch aside from maybe a few guards getting killed, right? Like that to me, again, is in a way Hudson Hawk sort of thumbing its nose at, at the genre. But again, the problem is that throughout the film, in, in the sense of it being a, a heist film about a great cat burglar, like we don't see it. We don't get any of that. And again, in, in Philibus, it's the same thing. When, when, yeah, she goes in to this place that clearly is, you know, already under scrutiny by Cut Hendy and these other people, and there's not even a single guard posted anywhere near the 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 Egyptian cat with the diamond right. eyes is mind-blowing. And the fact right. that Cut Hendy, knowing she was going to come and steal it because she left a note announcing that she was going to do it that evening... Right. Didn't decide to up security. And his biggest plan was, as you said, well, I'm just going to remove the real diamonds and put fake ones here. 
but I guess I'll just put the real diamonds just in the chest next to it <laughs> right? for her to yeah. just take. Not I mean, in like a private lockbox that I have under my bed, yeah, like hidden it, from everyone else. It's not like, couldn't this guy afford more, more? I mean, it's not like, yeah, he was short on cash to be able to afford more security guards yeah, to like hang out in that room or something. I mean, you know, <laughs> right. and again, I think that in the same way that we're sort of talking about how audiences were like looking at this and kind of been like, you know, special effects kind of suck, you know, for 1950. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised if there were a lot of audiences who were just kind of like, well, this this ain't no Fantomas, and I've seen Fantomas, right. you know? Right. Like, that's drama, that's excitement. And even if it is, you know, still, like, crude in the long lineage of heist films and where they would certainly go, I think even by probably 1915 standards, people are like, eh, it's a... Uh, not much, you know, but, but again, I think she's just gaslighting this guy. Right, it should have been the, called gaslight. The, the, it's the, true. Yeah. As a result <laughs> though, right. This movie has this more modern appeal to it because again, it's not about the heist. That's not right. why this movie is, is a sort of remarkable object. It's all those other things that you mentioned, you know, uh, uh, a pre-pre-code film before they even had any idea of what that would mean in the world of cinema that that just, yeah, has so many progressive sort of uh, depictions of people and especially women. I mean, yes, this is a this is a very badass film in retrospect because of who she is, not because of what she does that. Just sprays people with the sedative sprayer. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That confused me too because when they do one of Cut Hendy's like ways of getting uh, just like being safe is that later in the film, after he realizes her little sedative sprayer like knocked him out so many times, he stuffs cloth up his nose, uh, and then so she's like spraying it, and he's like, you could still see him taking like big open mouth breaths. You know, like, <laughs> as if yeah. that gas, like, only works in his nose or whatever. Um, but, yeah, no, Andy, I mean, I completely agree. I, it's, like, it's I mean, interesting. she's also not wearing a respirator. <laughs> yeah, she's just, like, immune. Know? Yeah, totally. There is something, like, a, there's something about these two films about when it feels like something real is happening, how it's so startling, because they're both so fantastical. And, like, I in Hudson Hawk... It was that moment you were talking about, Andy, with James Coburn being like, oh, we just we just took care of it. Like we rob we rob the Louvre ourselves. And the way it's presented, it feels as though it was like a terrorist attack, that it was something really, really scary. He's like, well, yeah, you know, if you hadn't done, you know, if you had just been a gentleman about all of this and played ball, like we wouldn't have had all these dead security guards. It's like it, it wasn't pretty. And you feel it. You're like, whoa. (laughs) <laughs> this feels like how it would actually happen in real life because it's like yeah these gentlemen thieves it's just it's fan it's fantasy but then there's james coburn being like yeah well we took care of yeah, it like hard way yeah and then at the same time in philibus it's it's weird how real the f- scene feels i mean again it's like a single shot but the scene when she's courting leonora when she's you know cross-dressing as the baron it for for so much of the film that's so fantastical with this goofy little airship because it really feels like they were they were thinking okay this is Fantomas and we'll throw an airship in here to to spice it up it's really that moment that yeah I mean with with the contemporary eyes it's hard not to feel like as though something real is happening I mean I certainly think the you know the marketing of this film is is almost purposefully overblown just to convince people to see a silent film from from 1915 but like it's still 
it's there, you know, which is which surprised me. There's one thing I wanted to bring up that I read in a Richard Brody piece about re or about watching Hudson Hawk for the first time in 2017. Uh, <laughs> and he had never seen it. And he was like, I'm going to give this a shot, you know, and it's a, it's actually a, not actually it is a very thoughtful write up and he has issues with it, but he does really appreciate its inventiveness. And he said something that really stuck with me that I think honed in on something that I like couldn't pinpoint when I was watching it. And he said, you know, the film, you know, sort of is, is victim of all these sort of influences. Like you said, Andy, I even read, they had like 80 script versions cause it kept getting rewritten. Like it doesn't surprise me, you know, like cause there's just, chunks of all of those like in the movie. Yeah. yeah. And Brody said, he's like, the musical idea is good, but like it seems like Layman got cold feet with it. And so it's it feels like an anomaly instead of like a motif or something that's like more tightly woven in. And Brody was yeah. like, I want more musical numbers yeah. in this film and it to be more fantastical. And I was like, oh, that's a really interesting perspective. Yeah, I think I, I, honestly to me, it's like that's that that is the 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 ultimate sort of, you know, like mortal wound of the film as we've been describing it's that it's like it's always fun for me to see movies especially hollywood movies that get budgets that that are are shooting for the moon and i think like interesting directions and interesting ways but with all of the competing creative visions and and perhaps also like anxieties and insecurities about what ultimately they were trying to make. Like, yeah, the movie falls apart because as we've discussed, it's like it goes over here and it gets like right up to the line. And then it just kind of like shifts gears, 90 degrees, hard cut to a new scene, new characters and a new set of antagonists or a, a new tone or whatever. And like, it has like zany cartoonish comedy, but then it also has like some sequences that are like incredibly bloody and violent. Yeah. I and almost forgot that people like fucking explode in this Yeah, movie. people explode. <laughs> right. You see body Heads parts flying are chopped around. Off. Heads are chopped off. Guys get their throats cut. I mean, there's like, there's graphic, you know, Joel Silver action violence in a movie that's 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 trying again i think in all of its comedy to sort of almost be like a kids movie in terms of just its goofiness its clunkiness its slapstick humor and that combination like creates this kind of yes i think like breakneck experience of like tonal shifts formally and like technically that you can't really come to terms with. Like it wants to be an action movie. Then it wants to be a lighthearted comedy. It wants to be a musical, but it only does like two sort two of like no, yeah. half hearted musical numbers that, that, you know, like don't add up to this kind of like full complete like coherent vision for what it is, you know? I mean, like to me, there are moments where everything is is clicking and then, yeah, it's just like getting, it just suddenly gets rear-ended by another choice that like on its own might've been great, but in now this sequence they're building, yeah, it, it does start to just like 
weigh on you like all of those things like each of them is a weight with another like 20 pounds of pressure on you yeah. to sort of like hang on for the ride but it's but yeah I, I wish there was one more song that richard grant could have sang in because i know he can sing i saw him in uh in my fair lady at like the chicago symphony and like he's got pipes <laughs> he could sing pretty good Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think he's great, though, as, again, a guy who I think understands the, again, like parodic element of the villain that he's playing. What can I tell you? I'm the villain. Initially, it was a priority to keep a lot of buffers between you and me. But since most of them are dead now, I thought, what the heck? Like he's he is so over the top as right. like I'm the Bond villain, I'm the insane billionaire. The look in his eyes, the the leaping up on the tables, the 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 physicality that he brings to that role. You know, I know that like Ebert, Ebert hated this movie as well. And Ebert's take on it was uh that, you know, he was like, Oh, I wish everybody but Bruce Willis and Danny Aiello played it straight. That was his thing. I think the movie would have been better if everybody played it straight. And I think, honestly, it would have been an infinitesimally worse film, even if everyone, like, toned down their performances and played it straight. I think then you would have something that was much more, like, typical Hollywood, you know? We have the smugging, we have the smuggy, jokey hero, and then all of these like dramatic performances or or straight characters around him. I think you would have felt even more like this isn't funny. I think that it 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 look, it is not a a smart comedy by any stretch of the imagination. But to me, what humor I can derive from it is that everyone is a fucking cartoon character in it. You know, again, in my 10 year old brain, I can appreciate that dude. The guy that cracks me up uh, probably more than anybody is, is Butterfinger, the strong sort of CIA henchman who is just a total klutz and an idiot. And yes, he has a very unfortunate line there, but like I laughed out loud when they're sitting at this cafe in Italy and his character is just the dumb, strong guy and he's missing a fucking tooth. I guess like Bruce Willis knocked out his tooth. He's eating like a probably like four foot long baguette covered in butter that he's sort of broken in half and is just eating. Read my lips. Steak burger. French fries. It's French, you gotta have French fries. Actually, it's Italy, Butterfinger. That is if it made a difference. And then as he looks at Bruce Willis and Andy McDowell having their sort of like romantic comedy scene, he smiles. Ah, uh, to be in Paris and in love. And like, that is so fucking dumb. And funny to me in that situation. Like, that's the kind of, like, childish humor that I think, like, gets kind of swallowed up by, I think, some of those other moments that that we've certainly described that are just like, whoa, that's a little... It's just overstuffed. There's a, there is, like, you know, to their credit in that Hollywood way, there's a joke a second. It's just that a lot of the jokes aren't good, and a lot of the good jokes get buried or get rushed over. Yeah. Because um, I think about, like, Heathers, which is a movie I love, 
And this movie has one of, you know, the writer of Heathers as one of the co-writers, and it's got Lehman as the director. And what Heathers does so well is it has a, it picks its tone and then like sustains it. Yeah. And it's a crazy tone. And a lot of people don't like Heathers, but like mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, you know, a, a tightrope walk on that tone throughout all of Heathers. Yeah. And like, I imagine a version of this movie that like nails it all the way through. But unfortunately you got Joel Silver, you got Bruce Willis as the yeah. producer and you story. You got Stephen idea. E. D'Souza shoved in there with, with the guy that wrote Heather's and like, yeah. I can't even, I doubt that those two dudes were ever in the same room Never. writing this thing, right. you know, and you could see the sections that Stephen E. D'Souza wrote and you could see the sections that, that Daniel Waters wrote yeah. and, and yeah, they, they don't gel. They don't gel. But I guess for me, like I, I always try to like, you know, again, I think like look for those, those sort of like those breaks in the clouds in some of those situations that, that are there, but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. It is hard. I mean, I actually think that special agent Ebert was onto something. Uh, I didn't read his, his piece, uh, but I think he's got it backwards. Cause I think that's interesting how you said he thought that everyone should have been playing it straight, except for Bruce and, and Danny. I totally disagree what it should have been was that Bruce and Danny are playing it straight and everyone else was operating at the same pitch. Cause it was, it was the two of them. Like that was when the movie was at its worst for me. Cause I, I, I really couldn't stand Bruce Willis in it. And I think if he had not been as irreverent and instead was reacting to all the irreverence around him, it could have created an interesting dynamic. Cause then to me, at least that tone, I could see it being sustained if it was like a little more balanced out. So I don't, to- you know, I, I think Gibbert has it totally wrong, but I think he's onto something. Cause I do see a version of this where like Bruce is befuddled. He's this great thief but he's totally befuddled at the way that everyone is acting around him and he's trying to work his way through it. Yeah. He's, he's, he is again, like a sort of divided character because there are moments where he's reacting to the craziness as a quote, you know, normal person should react to that kind of craziness, you know, especially with Sandra Bernhard and her dog and all of her antics. But then he's also, Gotta have his cake. Yeah, yeah, they are. And look, I mean, like, <laughs> and uh, look, I mean, Danny Aiello, who I I absolutely love. Like, I guess something that I do appreciate about this is, yes, this was a total disaster for everybody involved. But Danny Aiello looks genuinely like he is having the time of his life. And I think on a certain level, he probably saw this as I'm getting to go to vac- on a vacation to Italy. I'm making some dumb movie. I get to sing. I get to dance a little bit. I get all this stuff because like he <laughs> genuinely seems like he is just like laughing at the absurdity of not just the events, but the movie itself. And I, I tend to sort of like, uh, sort of try to maybe I guess project that onto him and appreciate that for for him like hey you got a good vacation a good Italian boy got to go to Italy and hang out and you got to be in some sort of throwaway thing and I'm sure you got paid handsomely yeah, for maybe it. he got to visit the set uh, of Philippus yeah. while he was in Italy <laughs> you know sure yeah fa- Dan- famously Danny Aiello's favorite movie yeah, well, as yeah, an Italian, he's probably seen all the great old Italian films. No, I liked J Rose. I liked J Rose. He he didn't 
it's more of like a uh, uncharacteristically just descriptive for him. He just kind of describes the movie. He calls it a bizarre throwback to the 60s subgenre of farcical James Bond spinoffs and then concludes it doesn't have the polish of Indiana Jones, but they keep it moving with a lot of good stunts. You know? <laughs> yeah, a, I mean, that's a great way to sum up the movie. It really is. Do you know what I think was the biggest tease of, of Philibus, and I keep thinking back on it, something I really wish they had showed us, was the photo that that tiny little camera takes from within the cat. Yeah. Because Philibus's idea... Are you sure we don't see it? If maybe I hallucinated, yeah. No, no, I, I mean, we see him develop the oh, photo. Oh, right, just like looks through the thing. Yeah, because that's the thing is, so his cut handy's plan is, okay, I'm going to put this little tiny camera in there, and then it'll trigger a device that when the eyeball pops out, we'll photograph it, we'll know who Philibus is. He's gassed in the other room when Philibus is there to steal the eye, but she senses something's off, and I think she just sort of pieces it together in her head. So there's this really amusing bit where they take cut handy who's passed out unconscious and they like prop him up in front of the cat so that when they pop the eyeball off it takes the photo of him but what i couldn't get over was like (laughs) in what world is this like passed out man how is that going to be convincing when they see like oh so he was philibus it's like the photo is just going to be of a dude like slunched slouched over and unconscious being held up by another man i imagine the camera's not very good and probably you know maybe you can't see the guy that's behind him you don't know what the framing's like you know right i'm just i'm just very curious that's why i just wanted to see what it looked like because i don't think I, they I, thought that far ahead i think they just thought right. like it'll be him when they look at right. it so <laughs> right. who cares right. you know I like know. this guy's like inventing forensics in this movie you know there's no <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was surprised how much like <laughs> fingerprint stuff is in this because that seems like pretty early for fingerprint analysis. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were smart enough to invent the motion picture camera. I'm pretty sure they could figure out <laughs> fingerprint analysis. You know, it's, it's true. It is awesome though that the secret camera also had those like you know turn of the century flashes associated with it. You know, like the the white phosphorus <laughs> that not only did the it capture the picture, but you. Having your picture taken, like you knew that you just had your picture taken. I mean, I would think again if I was the criminal and I suddenly had my picture taken by that thing, I probably would have just taken the whole cat, not just the eyes, and made sure that they didn't have the camera itself, you know. And again, a contempt for the the sort of like, yeah, the the idea of art that maybe both of these films sort of contain within them is that we have this yes ancient egyptian cat this 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 priceless sort of uh antiquity and the only thing that anyone's interested in are the diamonds in its eyes the cat is like carved up and has a camera even like stuffed inside of its like head in the first <laughs> right. place i mean they just destroyed that priceless antiquity by by his little you know bit of james bondery so now maybe you can clear this up for me andy i want to just make sure what the mayflowers are going after here with the leonardo da vinci device right so i I, for a second i was like kind of hyped up on their plan you know where they were like we're gonna we're gonna you know get the alchemy machine and we're gonna flood the world with gold so it's worthless and all like all financial systems collapse and i was like yes yes but then they were like and then so we're the only 
you know, business left. And I was like, no, you right. know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. I, you know, I've seen this movie a few times and like, yeah, it still doesn't quite make sense to me okay. either. I mean, again, I think there's an element to it that's just like he's they're nuts. They don't even really yeah, have a sure. fucking plan. Like he's he literally says like. I'm a billionaire. What's left for me? And then jumps up onto a table and screams world domination in a very like ridiculous way. So like, yeah, it's like you would, they they sort of talking about bringing the, the world, you know, like the, the, the IMF to its knees, right. They want to bring the world banking system to its knees, but then it's like, to what end for what purpose? I think nothing other than the fact that, yeah, they, they just think it would be fun, I guess, you know? Yeah. There's no plan. I mean, they're, they're like basically Elon Musk, you know, it's like, they just want power and fame and, and they are just like nihilists. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's for the sake of their own, I guess, amusement and narcissism, you know, but that's also probably reading into it more than certainly is, is required. Yeah, I mean, well, there was something interesting about the the sourced print for for Philibus as it relates to that. Because when you were saying, Andy, how they were just like totally destroying this artifact and they like thought nothing of it, and like the, them collecting all of these these items is like ultimately meaningless for all these just rich people that just want to decorate their parlors. I did think it was crazy did you, when like that when he was originally like propping out the diamond eyeball. That was when the film was like completely decaying yeah. and it looked like a bill morrison film like it was <laughs> falling apart at the seams it was like melting god yeah i was like this couldn't happen at a better moment it's like they're destroying this artifact and you feel like the whole thing is melting in front of your eyes that looked crazy yeah i did appreciate the the decacia uh yeah, sort of yeah. aspects <laughs> of uh Philibus for sure yeah it looked psychedelic for a for a second there yeah i mean all the airship shots look like that too like the, the, it's suddenly like way less stable. I, you know, it makes me wonder if like it's sort of just how they captured it. Like, because I assumed it was just a little puppet, but there are like a few other layered things in there with the clouds. Like, especially when they push that guy out of the airship and he falls through, and he's clearly not falling through a set. He's falling through like layered animation, sort of like on top of it, or at least like painted images. Wild to look at. And in a sort of poetic finale of Hudson Hawk, you know, uh, Bruce and and Andy McDowell go flying in the uh, Da Vinci flying machine, which, again, like links the films together with these sort of like retro kind of like steampunkish contraptions and people flying through the fucking air. And did you read this, Andy, that, you know, Danny Aiello insisted that he didn't die? That was just like his insistence to come back for the last scene of the movie. Yes. <laughs> and that's, again, what I mean by like the extended having, Italian vacation. Like, yeah, yeah, having fun and like thumbing their nose at, at the movie and the reality. Because even in that sequence, when last we had seen Danny Aiello's character, he went over a cliff trapped inside of the Mayflower's like limousine that explodes in one of the biggest like balls of fire you've ever seen in like an automotive wreck. I mean, he's, he's toast, he's cooked. And then when they, you know, Bruce and Andy, as you've said, they they are now at like a nice charming little Italian cafe to finally get the cappuccino. He's been trying to get all movie. Danny Aiello just magically shows up and the dialogue where they're like, wait, but did you? And he's like, yeah, 
who cares? You know, he's just basically saying like, yeah, sure. Let's just run with it. Let's go with it. And they just have this big, like stupid, goofy, laughy moment that to me again is just kind of like saying like, yeah, aren't all movies stupid? Aren't all movies like this fucking stupid where characters miraculously fucking just survive something they shouldn't survive? You know, again, I think it's like, (laughs) it's hard to get all the way there. And it probably doesn't fully read for some people, but as a Hudson Hawk apologist and somebody who's seen the movie a few times, I think you can pick up on some of like those, those wavelengths of what they were trying to get at, you know, and whether it hits or lands like, yeah, that's another one of those like total, uh, uh, sort of, you know, self-aware moments that, that certainly probably wasn't, uh, you know, a Stephen E. D'Souza <laughs> decision. It was clearly Danny Aiello being like, who gives a fuck? Look at the movie we've made, right? I'm just going to show back up. Why not? That did have my favorite line in the movie there at the end when it's him and uh, and Andy walking away. And then they say like, oh, I wish Tommy was here. And then he sees Tommy alive and he goes, no way. And she's like, that's not a very nice thing to say. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was just- kind of funny. <laughs> Stupid. Was Andy McDowell ever in any like screwball comedies? She was in, I mean, like a lot of romantic comedies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is probably as screwy as it got right. for her. I mean, she does have like a classic screwball comedy energy that had me sort of like, you know, imagining her in some kind of Hawksian kind of like. You know, Cary Grant movie or something. Where Dude, I think I love, she could have thrived. You know, I love Andy McDowell. I've, I, you know, I think she's uh, she's definitely like an underrated or underappreciated talent from that particular era. A lot of that probably has to do with the roles that she got. Yeah. But I think that there's a lot more in there. And I've always thought she's just a a, a little cutie as well. And I always loved that southern accent she had. <laughs> I feel like Margaret Qualley would make a good casting for the Philibus remake. I could see her pulling that off. Her daughter, Annie McDowell's daughter. Connect the two, dude. Yeah. The gauntlet produces. <laughs> but yeah, I guess are there are there any other gentlemen or 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 gentle lady thieves you would recommend March? I guess it doesn't actually have to fit in with the it could be any sort of thief film. Yeah, you you're re- right. Recommend. I can answer but whatever like, I want. In case you happen to also have a gentleman thief film you would recommend that comes to your mind, by all means. But well, uh, I mean, yeah, many. You know, I was trying to think of what I would 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 say. Um, I'm going to recommend a James Coburn movie that no one has seen. There's a '60s film that's a co- sort of cosmopolitan caper called "Dead Heat on a Merry-Go-Round," and it involves Coburn and like secret agencies, and he pulls off a heist at an airport uh, involving many different sort of like political figures. Uh, and it's a it's it's not great, but it's definitely like an underrated, underappreciated, and underseen heist film from the 60s in that cosmopolitan era where all of a sudden every heist movie is a jet-setting tax break write-off for Hollywood, you know? And, like, that's a whole fucking thing. And I do think Hudson Hawk is firmly in that spirit. And and again, like, like Rosenbaum said, isn't this kind of obscure to be throwing back to, like, you know... F- 
these old Coburn Bond knockoffs and like 60s cosmopolitan capers. Yeah, it is weird, you know, for sure. But it was the 90s. It was the postmodern uh, orgy everyone was going through at the time. So uh, Dead Heat on a Merry-Go-Round for sure. And I think uh, another really just like when I think zany caper, you know, you got to go to the king, Jules Dassin, Top Cappy, the comic caper he made in Turkey uh, a few years after Rafifi is one of the dumbest, goofiest, weirdest capers uh, you'll ever see. And I can see, like uh, Hudson Hawk, like, you may not like it because its tone is... Is all over the place. Yeah, <laughs> it is a chaotic film, uh, but it's got a lot of really good jokes about the Turkish deep state, and uh, I, <laughs> I appreciate that for sure. So, hell yeah, there nice. you go. There I forgot go. to thank you. You know, speaking of recommendations, I forgot to thank you for recommending that I listen to a, a, a Italo disco. Oh yeah, while watching Philibus, I put I found like an instrumental mix version of it. Yeah, uh, it was cool. I think it made it really bouncy yes when i saw that it was like a futurist film you know the screenwriter yeah. of uh philibus was in like the futurists and that whole mm-hmm. italian movement i was like oh okay then we gotta go synthetic you know synthesizer right. uh sort of marauder-esque uh disco and yeah if you're out there and philibus sounds like a a good idea to you throw on some italo disco you know uh just have a good time it really it really hits really fits you know well uh thank you guys for this fun week of thievery and throwing back to the gentleman thieves and gentle lady thieves in our uh beautiful history here uh it is Andy's turn next week to pick the topic. Want to tell us what you got? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, at DePaul, we, we've got a, a guest who's uh, going to be visiting us as part of our Visiting Artists series in the beginning of February. We're going to be visited by the great cinematographer Roger Deakins. He's coming to DePaul. And so just kind of reflecting on that a little bit, I was thinking... Maybe we could just do a deep dive focus onto great cinematographers. So, bring me a film by one of your favorite cinematographers. Uh, let's focus on the work of those great camera people. You know, we talk so much about directors yeah. on this pod. Let's just try to focus on a great cinematographer's film. So. I'll leave it up to you. You got obviously like so many different areas you can you can explore with that, but you know, let's take a look at some pretty or ugly pictures. Uh, yeah, cinematographer week on the pod. Wow, I'm cranking the camera right now, thinking about it. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies. You can listen to us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and you can always send us an email at Marsh's Mailbag at GauntletMoviePodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Every schmo has the fantasy that the planet revolves around them. It rains. A car crash stops traffic. You say, how can this happen to me? But for us, this isn't a fantasy. It is a reality. Oh, yes. If Da Vinci was alive today, 
He'd be eating microwave sushi naked in the back of a Cadillac with the both of us. The project of his life is now the toy of mine. History, tradition, culture are not concepts. These are trophies I keep in my den as paperweights. Chaos will cause the world with this machine will be our final masterpiece.